Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. As the verdict of this case makes clear, the department will work tirelessly to hold accountable those responsible for crimes related to the attack on our democracy on January 6th. The Oath Keepers sedition trial he was referring to, Trump's white nationalist dinner guest, and Kevin McCarthy's embrace of his party's fringe. It's all happening at the same time, and it's all connected. And while Kevin is facing the possibility of complete humiliation in his caucus, the Democrats today made an historic and smooth transition to a younger generation of leadership. One of those new members, Congresswoman Catherine Clark, joins me in her first interview since being elected House Democratic Whip. Meanwhile, Republicans appear to be passing the torch to Florida's Ron DeSantis, buying into all the myths about the magical mean little governor with the oversized flight helmet and snow white boots. Well, tonight, we're going to look at the reality of DeSantis and why he'd be a tough sell to a national audience. We begin tonight with a resounding victory for the Department of Justice. Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes was convicted Tuesday of seditious conspiracy for a violent plot to overturn President Joe Biden's election. It's Yale to jail for the insurrectionist whose real name is Elmer and who I should note wears that eye patch, not because he's some sort of war hero, but because he accidentally shot out his own eye, meaning he's bad at two things, overthrowing democracies and handling a firearm. Kelly Meggs, leader of the far-right organization's Florida wing, who was also found guilty of the same charge, was also found guilty of the same charge, and three other Oath Keepers were found guilty on other charges. Today, Attorney General Merrick Garland said the trial shows that the DOJ will work tirelessly to hold all January 6th perpetrators accountable. It is indeed a landmark case for the DOJ. It's extremely rare for prosecutors to bring a charge of seditious conspiracy, given how difficult it is to prove it in court it's even more rare to actually get that conviction. In fact, we could only find three prior cases resulting in seditious conspiracy convictions. The first actually involved Puerto Rican nationalists who stormed into the Capitol in 1954. The second involved another Puerto Rican nationalist convicted in 1980. And the third involved Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman and other Islamic militants who were convicted in 1995 of participating in a plan to blow up landmarks in New York City after the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. The Rhodes conviction, therefore, is an extraordinary uh, extraordinary win and historic. It is good news for our democracy and a major blow to other far-right leaders. Two more seditious conspiracy trials are set to start in the coming weeks involving other Oath Keepers members as well as members of the right-wing Proud Boys group, including its former chairman, Enrique Tarrio. Both Rhodes and Tarrio are highly visible leaders of the far-right anti-government movement. 
You may recall this video released by the DOJ showing Tario and Rhodes meeting in a Washington, D.C. garage on the eve of the insurrection, putting the heads of the most prominent extremist and violent organizations connected to January 6th in immediate proximity to each other 24 hours before the breach of the Capitol. But I think it's important to note that the verdicts against Rhodes, Megs, and their associates are not some separate, isolated story from everything else we've been talking about on this show every night. It's not separate from Donald Trump dining with Nick Fuentes, an outspoken anti-Semite and white supremacist, and above all, someone who hates women, or active members of Congress, not retirees like Trump, members of Congress with actual current power speaking at conferences organized by Fuentes, or members of a major political party embracing white replacement theory, thanks to Fox's most watched host, Tucker Carlson whose mission in life seems to be stoking white fear and injecting racist conspiracy theories into households across America. In fact, when you put all these guys in a room, which, I mean, it's kind of hard to pinpoint where one ends and the others begin. You know, they say about America, they say diversity is our strength. How precisely is diversity our strength? Black people are violent, you know? They have chaos and violence in their in their uh, communities. Send the military into these black neighborhoods, make the streets safe, they'll complain about it. It, it doesn't it doesn't matter. We should send in the troops if necessary to restore order. Well, not with the Jim Crow stuff, who cares? Oh, and to drink out of a different water fountain, big Oh, the legacy of Jim Crow. That was 67 years ago. It is ancient history now. With thanks to The Daily Show for that mashup. And that kind of rhetoric has consequences. Today, the Department of Homeland Security raised concerns about potential threats to the LGBTQ, Jewish and migrant communities from violent extremists inside the United States, saying Americans motivated by violent ideologies pose a persistent and lethal threat. Elmer Stewart Rhodes may face a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison. Others will be convicted for what they did leading up to and on January 6th. But the story doesn't end there because the story is the creeping white nationalism that has infected the party that all of these people support. The party that has invited hate and fear of fellow Americans as guests to Thanksgiving dinner. And until they kick this ideology out and not just slap Trump around a little bit because he lost them elections. I mean, kick them out. All the prosecutions in the world won't make any difference. Joining me now is Michael Steele, MSNBC political analyst, former chair of the Republican National Committee and host of the Michael Steele podcast. And Jason Stanley, professor of philosophy at Yale University and author of How Fascism Works. And I do want to start with you, Michael, because you used to be in charge of this party. So you know what it means when the creep begins. Yeah. And the creep began with the Tea Party and you had to, to, to wrestle with it. But you actually are somebody with integrity and with a mind of your own. Kevin McCarthy, as somebody who's got to now steer this ship. Let me just play you what who his new boss is. Okay. Here's Marjorie Taylor Greene at Nick Fuentes' event. So if Nick <laughs> Fuentes is untouchable, well, she touched. Here she is. Do you know what it's like to be canceled? And that's why I'm here to talk to you tonight. I don't believe anyone should be canceled. I don't believe in I don't believe in separating people and identities. I don't believe in separating people and classes. But that's what the Democrats believe in because that's what Marxism is. That's what communism is. 
And she was introduced by Fuentes at that event. Yeah, which is that's just a load of crap. It's total BS. And so, so she doesn't want to cancel people, and she doesn't want to break people off into into these different classes or whatever. Then why are you calling your fellow Republicans rhinos? Why are you why are you uh, separating those of us who have been stalwarts of Lincoln, Reagan, Eisenhower, Bush Republicanism as something as a pariah? So you know, just just cut the act. You're hanging out with the people who represent your values and your interests. When you show up at a Fuentes event, that says more about you than it does Fuentes, because we know who he is. We know what that is. So now your embrace of it says a lot about you. But here's the ugly, dirty little rub, Joy, is that the leadership of the Republican Party refuses to reject it, refuses to say, that's not us. MTG, Margaret, whatever, Marjorie Taylor Greene, whatever you want to call you, you're not going those, to those events anymore. You're going to go out and you're going to re- reject that. You don't hear that narrative emerging from within the leadership. They want all of us at this point to fixate on we're past Trump. Right. We're no longer doing Trump. Trump, we, oh, Trump was bad. Oh, this bright, shining object down in Florida. Let's focus on that in Governor DeSantis. But I'm sorry, you don't get to wipe that stain off your your clean white shirt that easily because that's a deep stain. January 6th was a deep stain. Embracing Fuentes was a deep stain. And while you may not have done so directly, the leader of your party did. Yeah. And as the head of your party and as a leader on the Hill or representing the party across the country at the state level, if you don't reject that then that's you, baby. Yeah. And those of us who rejected have tried to be very clear about that. But here we are. And here we are. And Jason, I mean, here's the thing. Donald Trump has no actual power right now. Donald Trump is a retired person in Florida. All right. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene has electoral power. In fact, she is essentially the boss of the person most likely to be the next speaker. He has to do what she says or else. And it's not Donald Trump that is banning books. It's people like Ron DeSantis. This is the kind of books that are getting banned by Republicans who are not Donald Trump. Anything to do with LGBTQ themes. That's 41% of the books. Characters of color, 40%. Sexual content, 22%. I don't even know what that even means. Titles with issues of race or racism. That's a fifth of the books. Titles about uh, civil rights and activism. Any biography or memoir. And those are mainly things like the biography of Dr. King. (laughs) Stories with religious minorities in it, 4%. The book banning... The attacks on people who are LGBT, the attacks on drag shows, that ain't Trump doing that. That's the people that they're saying are the replacements for Trump. Your thoughts. That's right. I mean, I think that we when we ask for an apology or or ask for distancing from these strategies or their or or connections, uh, we're omitting the fact that maybe not apologizing is a message, is a communication strategy. When you don't apologize, what you're sending is a message that you're going to stand by the extremists uh, at, without explicitly endorsing the extremists. If you explicitly endorse the extremists, well, then you're going to lose the suburban white vote or whatever. Uh, but if you simply don't apologize, then you can have it both ways. So this is an explicit communicative strategy, and it's extremely well covered in the history of fascism. Uh, Richard Evans, the fascism scholar, says that the Nazis never explicitly denounced the radical actions of their followers. 
uh, but they, they, they intentionally didn't. They left it vague. Uh, and that's an intentional communication strategy. So we shouldn't say, so from their perspective, they're doing the right thing. If this, if there's a fascist social and political movement arising within the GOP that centers around great replacement theory, which is the structural narrative center of fascism, uh, uh, Hitler was deeply influenced by Madison Grant's 1916 book, The Passing of the Great Race, which which was about the replacement of Nordic Americans. So this is uh, American fascism uh, that we're seeing, and uh, this pro and and the refusal to distance themselves is intentional. So when we say, "Oh, they need to distance themselves," we're not facing reality here. Uh, reality yeah. here is this is who they are. And the thing about it is that Donald Trump, because he is self-centered, right, mm -hmm. calls the people the, you know, yay ain't all there, right. but he calls the people to him. These people go to Tucker Carlson. Right? right. These people go to Fuentes. This is a 24 year old kid who does his podcast from his mama's basement. And he can get a con two congressmen. Gosar and to come to him. Come they to him. go to Tucker Carlson to lay down at his feet while he talks about white replacement theory. They're running toward the fascism, not running away from it. And then they slap Donald Trump around who can't do them anything. He can't do a thing to them. And it, and it speaks, I think, to the broader narrative that has begun to emerge over the last six, eight months, certainly within the past year, where Donald Trump is less a central figure in this in this play, in this in this multi-layer. It's bigger drama. than him now. It's bigger than him now. He is outgrown. Uh, well, his product has outgrown him. That's correct. And and so what's what we see now emerging and one of the challenges the party is going to have, which is this whole move by the RNC to to somehow think they're going to renew themselves by sitting in a room with with uh, masters and others, players who've been a part of this drama um, are not going to move you away from the drama. You're just going to fall. you find yourself rolling steeper into it because the drama is now bigger yeah. than than the thing that created it. And, and you know, Jason, let me show, let's play you. I, I love PRI. It is my favorite thing, but uh, poll, polling wise. And Jason, they did a poll that that you know, um, Robert Jones, who is their their big demographer, their big pollster. He said this is the piece of data that tells you where we are right now. When you ask people, has life changed mostly for the better since the 1950s or for the worse? Whether it's Tea Party people or MAGA people, they will generally answer it's changed for the worse. Only 29% Republicans say that uh, say, say that America has changed for the better. It's understandable why Democrats say it because Democrats are multiracial. There's more racial rights. LGBT people have more rights. Black folks have more rights. So they say, yeah, things are better. Republicans consistently, Jason, say it's gone downhill, and that's the thing that ties the Tea Party and the MAGA people together. Uh, that's right. I mean, this idea that, uh, again, it goes back to great replacement theory. This idea of uh, the, uh, the attack on trans people is, oh, they're replacing womanhood. Uh, the attack on the uh, the uh, immigration, I mean, that's always been the center uh, of, of fascism, that, that, you know, the immigrants will replace us. Uh, the idea that whites will be decentered. Uh, that's a threat you can use uh, to uh, to marshal support, and then you can you can go after multiple scapegoats here. You can go after Black Americans. You can go after LGBT. We're seeing increasing anti-Semitism, of course, uh, which was you know uh, that train is never late, as, uh, as Chris Rock <laughs> once said. Uh, 
<laughs> and so, uh, so, uh, so that's going to be so the people who think that they can escape this, say, because they're, uh, they're, uh, they're not black, uh, or they're Christian, uh, they're not going to, or, or they're, uh, they're LGBT, white and LGBT, they're not going to be able to escape this. Uh, th there's a logic to this that is inevitable. Uh, and, and the 20th century laid out for us. Uh, and, and hopefully, uh, that's how we can defeat it. And we hope that this, the main political party, because look, y'all, Democrats had this problem. This is not something Democrats are unfamiliar with. Democrats have a history of having these people in-house. And the only way that they fixed themselves and got to the point where they could elect a Barack Obama is they pushed them out. They had to push them. They, they became Dixiecrats. They said, get out. And the you Republicans had, picked them up. And then up. the Republicans <laughs> said, come on in, baby. Come on in. The water's Jeez. fine over here. Uh, Michael Steele. I need a Jason drink. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> That's just water in that mug if he lifts it up. Uh, thank you all very much, Jason Stanley and Michael Steele. Up next on The Readout, Kevin McCarthy's website already proclaims him the speaker elect, even though his fight for the job, well, it's not even close to being over. Meanwhile, the Democratic side, you're hearing words like smooth, seamless, and historic. The new House Democratic whip. Congresswoman Catherine Clark joins me next. The readout continues after this. <laughs> Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. It is a tale of two parties in Washington, a show of unity from House Democrats as they officially pass the torch to a new generation of leaders. New York Representative Hakeem Jeffries, elected to lead House Democrats in the 118th Congress in January, joined by Catherine Clark of Massachusetts and Pete Aguilar of California as whip and caucus chair. Succeeding House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Congressman Jeffries will be the first black lawmaker to lead either party in Congress. Today, the newly elected leader spoke out about the history-making changes at the top. I stand on the shoulders of people like Shirley Chisholm and so many others as we work to advance the ball for everyday Americans and get stuff done. We, as a team and as a caucus, reflect the diversity and the strength of the American people. That's not lost on me what my election means for, for my community, for the Latino community. Uh, being a kid from San Bernardino, having an opportunity to help guide this caucus is a great responsibility. Meanwhile, <laughs> on the other side of the aisle, uh, House Republicans are fighting amongst themselves over who will be the next speaker. Republican leader Kevin McCarthy faces the possibility of a humiliating and potentially career-ending defeat as he scrambles to secure enough votes to get his hands on the gavel. At least five members of his caucus have already publicly vowed to vote no on McCarthy. 
as speaker. And joining me now is the newly elected House Democratic Whip, Congresswoman Kathleen Clark of Massachusetts. Congresswoman Catherine, Catherine Clark of Massachusetts. I'm sorry. That's me being silly. Thank you very much, Congresswoman. And congratulations. Thank you so much. So I just want to show the picture, just the look of you guys, the side by side of the new leadership. Presumably, we're not 100 percent sure about the Republican side, but just looking at their leadership team and your leadership team, it is a it is a big difference. What do you think that it will mean for the people of this country? The people of this country will be able to see themselves in our leadership. And when you can see yourself in those who are making laws and affecting your life, then you know there's hope. And it is a message that I hope that we can send to everyone and especially to the girls of this uh, nation that they can do anything they want to do. And when the diversity of our caucus is so beautiful and it reflects the beautiful mosaic of this country. And what does that mean? It means we bring those ideas and those people with us. And for me, I want to tell the women of this country, they will come and sit right next to me at the leadership table. And there's, I mean, look, it's not lost, I think, on a lot of folks that this was an election in which women had a lot to say because the right uh, to control your own body is is no longer universal in this country, thanks to the Supreme Court. And the voters had something to say about that, and especially voters of color who were very strongly, you know, pro-freedom on this for women. Um, And so I want to look at some of the things that can be done. Um, There's still a lame duck session. I know there's still stuff to do. What would your priorities be? Let me just, before I get to the stuff that can be done now, What would your priorities be when when you're coming in? You're going to be counting the votes for for what causes. Yeah. I mean, we're going to keep doing the work that we've been doing, which is putting people and solutions together. Look at our track record from the past session. Um, We were able to to make sure that we were cutting health care costs for for our seniors. We passed the historic investment in climate change. We are we were able to um, stand up for women and reject the idea that they were now going to be secondhand citizens. And I have to tell you, as I traveled the country in the midterms, I heard that energy from women. I saw that women were registering in record numbers. They were showing up, volunteering, making their voices heard, along with young people. And when what I would get asked, isn't the interest in abortion and reproductive justice waning? Isn't this an issue you're putting too much emphasis on? I really want to ask, have you ever met a woman? (laughs) Have you ever talked to her about her life? And I think people understood on a fundamental level that if, if the GOP was willing to come into people's lives and tell them when and if to have children, um, and, you know, put their judgment in place of a woman's, of her medical needs of her economic situation, there is no line they yeah. want to cross. Yeah. Let, let, let's talk about some of the unfinished business. Number one, um, the question, uh, David Cicilline is challenging uh, Jim Clyburn, uh, Congressman Clyburn, uh, for the number four position Democratic leadership. Uh, any comment on that? And he made the point that um, that leadership should include in its diversity an LGBTQ member, which he would add to it. What do you know about that back and forth? 
listen, I fully support Jim Clyburn. I think that he is staying on on the leadership team and is a valuable and key player. And we are also going to, you know, we do reflect the beautiful mosaic, and right. that includes LGBTQ. Oh. So we will see tomorrow. Okay, we'll find out tomorrow. The other thing is there is a lame duck session before you all take over the new leadership team. And I'm just going to put up a few of the things that are on the docket. There is funding the government, um, which I think a lot of people would not like to see left to the chaos Congress that could come, the chaos leadership that could come, reauthorizing the National Defense Authorization Act, COVID-19 funding, additional aid to Ukraine, which, you know, people like Marjorie Greene have said they would like to end, um, raising the debt limit, which seems a little bit nervous to, to pass along to the next Congress, uh, and also reforming the Electoral Account Act to make sure that we can't have a legislative version of another insurrection. How much of that do you think gets done in the lame duck? Uh, we're going to to try and do all of that, because as you said, we know that we are now watching a GOP in the House that is taking over and choosing chaos over community. Uh, they have led with obstruction over the years they've been in the minority, and they have no plan to do anything different. They have not found how low they can go yet, and they are willing to bring in anybody uh, from the extreme side of their party to try and get power. But when, when you don't have a moral compass, it is hard to steer a ship. And so we're going to pass a budget that reflects the needs of these people. We are going to make sure that Ukraine can continue to defend itself. And we are going to pass a military budget. These are the things that I'm working on, appropriations with my chairwoman, Rosa DeLauro. She is working every minute of every day to get this work done so that we can make sure that our house is in order because we're a party that believes in governance and responsibility. And that's our responsibility to the American And people. all of that will be done under, um, I believe her new title is going to be Speaker Emeritus, but still right now, still Speaker there's one Nancy speaker at Pelosi. a time. Yeah, Nancy and Pelosi she is, is still speaker, the speaker Nancy Pelosi. And I just want to mention something that is going to happen in the lame duck, which we can all celebrate, and that's marriage equality. Yeah. Not with not all the Republicans supporting it, weirdly enough, even though it's yeah, but for both LGBTQ uh, folks and interracial marriage. Interesting times. Thank you very yeah. much. Congratulations, Thank you so much. Congresswoman Catherine Clark, the House Democratic Whip designate. I mean, she's going to be counting all those votes. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much for being here. And coming up next, internal disagreement between rail unions is causing a major rift in the railroad industry. Now the White House and Congress are working to head off a strike that could cost the U.S. economy $2 billion a day. Stay with us. The American railway system is the lifeblood of our nation's economy, and it's been that way since the early 1800s. Their unions have been a key force in pushing the American labor movement forward by demanding fair pay and reasonable hours. In 1946, 250,000 rail workers walked off the job, bringing much of the United States to a screeching halt after negotiations for a pay increase stalled. Weeks of negotiation proved fruitless, cutting off shipments of vital supplies and leaving thousands stranded in every part of the country. That strike suddenly ended when President Harry Truman, a Democrat who despised, air, who despised strikes, made a shocking request of Congress to grant him the authority to draft the striking workers into the armed forces. He also threatened to have the army 
take over operation of the trains, a threat he acted on in 1950 when rail workers went on strike once again. In 1982, freight workers went on strike demanding better pay. Most freight cars are idle, loaded with everything from apples to television sets. Strikers say if they don't get what they want, they'll stay out indefinitely. The men themselves don't like to lose the time or the wages either, but there is a time when you have to uh, make a stand. President Ronald Reagan, no friend of the unions, ended that costly four-day rail strike after legislation was rushed through Congress to bring the strike to an end. Today, we might be on the precipice of yet another major strike. Roughly 115,000 rail workers are threatening to walk off the job after four of their 12 unions rejected a White House broker deal because it failed to provide a week of paid sick leave, which seems like a reasonable ask, no? This potential strike would be devastating to the American economy. 30% of freight moves by rail, everything from chlorine for drinking water to corn and cars. The Association of American Railroads estimates that a nationwide rail shutdown could cost the country $2 billion a day in lost economic output. At President Biden's request, the House passed two resolutions. One would require workers to accept the tentative agreement the Biden administration negotiated in September. The second would provide seven paid sick days, an attempt to address the workers' concerns. Both are headed to the Senate, but it is unclear if the second measure, including the sick days, will get enough support from Senate Republicans. And joining me now is Congressman Ro Khanna of California. And Congressman, uh, I don't know how much you chat with the folks in that other chamber, but I, hopefully I've characterized this all correctly because it sounds to me like it's another one-two punch that's being required here. You know, force the acceptance of this negotiated deal, but also get the sick days. Do you see it getting through? Joy, I'm cautiously optimistic, but you were absolutely right. It is such common sense that railroad workers should get seven paid sick days. I mean, how can you require in COVID where people have to take five days to quarantine, not having the option of having a paid sick day? That's all they're asking for while railroad companies are making record profits. I believe the president should say, I'm only going to sign the bill that the House of Representatives passed with seven sick days. If not, I'm not going to sign it and put the pressure on the Senate to deliver. And we know that Senator Bernie Sanders has said that he won't support um, the one bill without the paid sick days. He won't support the main bill. Do, do you know of any other senators who've made a similar commitment? He says there he's intending to block consideration of the rail legislation until a roll call vote occurs on guaranteeing the seven paid sick days. Do you know if there are any others that are on that same uh, that have that same plan? Not publicly. Senator Sanders obviously has been a champion uh, for getting the, the sick days. Now, there are Republicans who have said that they will vote for the paid sick days, uh, uh, Senators Cruz and Holly and Rubio. And the question is, are they really going to stand with what they've been saying rhetorically? I mean, this is their chance to show that they actually are standing for family values. This is their chance to show that they're actually standing for working families and blue collar voters. So I am very glad that we're going to have people on the record. I'm really proud of Senator Sanders for his uh, commitment to this issue. And I think the president should make it clear, look, that this is not asking for something excessive. Most people believe that you should be able to get up to seven days uh, for paid leave if you're sick. 
And what happens if this doesn't go through? Because it sounds like an economic catastrophe is just ahead. It is. But the question, Joy, in this country is, if we're going to avert economic catastrophe, should the burden always fall on the working class? Should we always tell them, just don't, just be fine with it? Or should we at some point say, no, the burden has to fall on the people who are the railroad executives who are making millions of dollars? Why not claw back some of that money and put it into paid sick leave? And that's why I think people are making this stand, because if the workers were asking for some uh, huge pay raise, that'd be one thing. They're just asking to be able to take a day off if they're sick or their kids are sick. Uh, it's just the humane thing to do, and we need to stand with them and demand that the corporations make the compromises. Uh, it is it's hard for me to understand what the argument against this would be. Have you heard what the argument is from these rail companies as to why they don't think it's a good idea to give these folks a week off if they're sick? They claim that they've already given large pay increases. They claim that the workers have already negotiated that. But that would be like saying, okay, we gave you a, a pay increase, but you don't get health care. <laughs> we gave you, yeah, you know, I mean, these are, these are basics. And, uh, it, they've just gotten away with these things because they claim then, oh, the economy is going to collapse. We have to do that. Uh, the same argument happened in, with the financial crash. They said we have to bail out the bankers because otherwise the economy will crash. And it puts people in a difficult position. I understand that the president's first commitment is to keep the economy strong. But, you know, at some point we have to say the working class can't always get shafted. We can't do this on the backs of the people who are working the hardest, who are being treated unfairly. And I'm really proud of the House that we voted unanimously as Democrats to, for that seven paid sick days. Yeah. Only in America do we have to argue over whether you can stay home if you're sick and not drive a train <laughs> as a person who's sick. Uh, thank you, Congressman Ro Khanna. Uh, wild world. Uh, up next, Supreme Chairman Ron DeSantis' is purge of dissenters has escalated in the not-so-free state of Florida. More details on that coming right ahead. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Whoa, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. After essentially making it illegal to talk about things like racism or the existence of gay people in schools, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is now taking his fight against education to the next level, seemingly getting revenge on the school leaders who defied his anti-mandate COVID policies. New reporting from Politico today says several DeSantis-backed school board members are purging superintendents who have all one thing in common. They all have one thing in common. They enforced mask mandates last fall against the governor's wishes. 
Over the span of one week, board members in two counties sacked their superintendents, while the school board in heavily Democratic Broward County, well, all five members appointed by DeSantis fired their superintendents earlier this month. And most of these school board members had just been elected. Political writes that during the midterm election cycle, DeSantis, quote, used his clout to endorse more than two dozen school board candidates, a rare move for a Florida governor that came with $1,000 cash contributions. Most of the candidates he endorsed won their elections and are now transforming the makeup of school district leadership and will have huge influence over policies affecting hundreds of thousands of students in the state. It also comes as DeSantis announces that he's doing something that is very common for potential presidential candidates. He's writing a memoir to be released next year entitled The Courage to be Free, Florida's Blueprint for America's Revival. Okay, you can stop laughing, but seriously, there is one huge qualification, something essential if you want to run a successful presidential campaign that Chairman Ron lacks, and that is charm, charisma, a personality. In a new column for The Atlantic, Mark Leibovich writes about how those who think the Florida Republican is a hot commodity just haven't met him yet. And that's coming from members of his own party. DeSantis's former House colleague Barbara Comstock said he was standoffish in general. Rick Wilson called him a strange, no-eye-contact oddball. Tallahassee lobbyist Mark Stepanovich put it rather bluntly, saying, I'd rather have teeth pulled without anesthetic than be on a boat with Ron DeSantis. And we'll talk to the author of that column after this short break. You're running for governor. Why don't you look in the eyes of the people of the state of Florida and say to them, if you're reelected, you will serve a full four-year term as governor. Yes or no? Yes or no, Ron? Will you serve a full four-year term if you're reelected governor of Florida? It's not a tough question. It's a fair question. He won't tell you. After the midterm election, the Republican Party and the media wasted no time dubbing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis as the future of the Republican Party, practically rolling out the red carpet for a 2024 presidential run. What they're not taking into account is that in person, he's basically a mean little awkward dude, as any any Floridian who's dealt with him and isn't on the bandwagon will tell you. And while that clearly works in Florida, where the baseline voter is mean grandpa in the villages or angry ex-Batista fan in Miami, I mean, those folks repeatedly elected Rick Medicare fraud Scott and Marco Rubio. Well, in national politics, though, having a personality generally helps a lot. Yet as Mark Leibovich writes in his new column for The Atlantic, to sum up, Ron DeSantis is not a fun and convivial dude. He prefers to keep his earbuds in. His step away from the vehicle vibes are strong. Joining me now is Mark Leibovich, staff writer for The Atlantic and author of Thank You for Your Servitude. This is quite a column, Mark. Thank you for being here. Um, uh, Let me read one more quote from this article. Um, On a debate stage, all of Trump's strengths, let's say he was debating Trump. If he's debating Trump, all of Trump's strengths go right to DeSantis' weaknesses. Um, And this is what Mr. Stepanovich told you. Trump has energy and presence. DeSantis is dour and doesn't improvise particularly well. People who are appropriately sycophantic to Trump swear he possesses a certain charm and charisma. Even those who are eager to vouch for DeSantis don't say that about him. Um, and he would launch any charm offensive unarmed. Yes, he would. So yeah. how, how do you suppose he's so successful there and why that wouldn't translate nationally? Well, it's expectations. I mean, people, I mean, every four years, 
the political pros, the media, just build up people like this. I mean, Scott Walker, you know, Rick Perry, <laughs> yep. Beto O'Rourke. I mean, you know, every four years there are these little bubbles, right? And they yeah. just burst as soon as these people are called upon to open their mouth, sort of deal with each other in a debate. And that clip that you just showed of of Charlie Chris sort of trying to pin down DeSantis on whether he's going to serve out his four-year term. I mean, it's not a very hard question. I mean, right. it's yes or no. I mean, I can see why he'd want to duck it because he's going to run for president. But what that was a, I think, a window into is just the guy doesn't think on his feet. I mean, you, he did not have to freeze. He did, that did not have to be as awkward as it was. And in recent history, I mean, Donald Trump has run circles around guys like that, and he is not comfortable in his skin. He is not fast on his feet. And I think we saw a lot of the handicaps right there. You know, the thing is about political charisma is rare. Yeah. There are a lot of boring politicians, let's just Absolutely. be clear. So you don't have to be exciting. Right. But, you know, the thing that Barack Obama has, yeah. so rare, right? Even Joe Biden, there's a Bideniness about Joe Biden. It's, a, it's a political brand that yeah. works on a national stage because it's comforting. Yep. The, the challenge for DeSantis, let me just play a little clip of him, mm. that even for people who like him, that I know there are Republicans mm. in Florida who think he's good at, at you you know, they loved him on COVID, for instance. Yep. None of them will say to me they think that he has the charisma for a national stage. They just they, right. they want to be honest and they won't say it. Let me just show you a little bit of DeSantis um, and how he behaves. You do not have to wear those masks. I mean, please take them off. <laughs> Honestly, it's not doing anything and we got to stop with this COVID theater. So if you want to wear it, fine, but this is a, this is ridiculous. Yeah, I, you know, honestly, this has been, excuse me, excuse me. Excuse me. This has been handled ad nauseum. I, you, I know you can talk about the, these officials. Ask them about it. That's fine. Go ahead, ma'am. Go ahead, ma'am. Go ahead, ma'am. Okay, okay, okay. Stop. Stop. Now, I'm not calling Mr. DeSantis a racist. I'm simply saying the racists believe he's a racist. But, Mr. DeSantis. The challenge is somebody like Trump, whatever you think of him, if you dislike him, you cannot you can't argue against the fact that he has performative qualities. He does. That guy doesn't. No, he doesn't. And again, those scenarios do not have to be as awkward as, as they looked. OK, I mean, the thing with the masks, I mean, you can see where there's an appeal to like a bully kind of guy. Right. Who's trying to like, you know, maybe he's trying to make targets out of these you know, maybe conscientious high school students, whoever they were. But I, I think in a case like that is you just sort of laugh it off. No right. one was laughing at that. It was cringy. Yeah. Right. So I, I just think that, look, it's presence. It's very intangible. And again, you can this is not disqualifying necessarily. I mean, you know, America does seem to like bullies to some degree. Um, you don't have to be as charming. And I mean, maybe it gets you credibility as like a kind of as an anti-establishment kind of doesn't play well with others kind of guy. But I, I look, I just don't think that he will wear as well as some people think he will. You know, it's interesting. America likes bullies. That is true. Right. There's a there's a bully. But I go back through the really successful and, pro and popular presidents. I didn't like him, but Reagan. Correct. Right. Reagan had a way of slicing you in a way with a smile. Oh, yeah. You know, John F. Kennedy, he had that way of cutting with a smile. George W. Bush, okay, wasn't my cup of tea, yep. but the I want to have a beer with him factor. There's zero with this guy. And then he does things that are weirdly awkward. The boots. The you boots. Know? I mean, you want to yes. call, I, I, my nickname for him now is Boots, I'll be honest with you all. Uh, internally. Because the thing is, the idea that you don't all, also have staff mm -hmm. that could explain to you what will work outside of the villages. It, the villages right. loves anything he does. It would That's not the national audience, and Miami-Dade County is not a national audience. Right, and when you see a governor...
put on boots like that. I mean, again, we don't want to focus too much on the superficial, but that tells me that this is someone that, whose staff is afraid of him, right? Because he's going to go out in public and, you know, the camera's going to go right to these weird, you know, knee-high boots. And, and he's like 5'1", so they're like half his height. Actually, I think he's 4'1". He's even <laughs> short. He's like a, but no, it's... Um, so yeah, that's a staff. That's a staff issue. I mean, it's a staff issue that he's not listening to them. And to me, that's what that told me. But he's running, right? I mean, the guy. It I mean, seems the guy, like he's going to run. What do you think it looks like in terms of how many? Is he the one guy that's going to defy? Because the rest of them will be too afraid to run against Trump. You think he's the one guy that will try to do it because he will get mowed down like a deer in the headlights. I think it's entirely possible that he does get mowed down. I think obviously it's it's good to be in the position he's in because a lot of people are sort of assuming that that they'll put a lot of money there, that sure. he will be the default kind of non-Trump candidate. But I, I also think that there's a lot of reason he shouldn't run. I mean, he's sort of on top of the world right now. Maybe it's his moment. He doesn't want to miss his moment. But but ultimately, um, yeah, he's in a good position. I, I just think that it will never be as good as this. It'll never be as good as And the other thing is, once you start to run, then people start to ask who you really are. And then the yeah. stories about him being the teacher in Georgia, who's teaching you know slavery from the Confederate side, right. these things then start to accumulate. People want to know more about you. Yeah, and he'll be called fun. upon to open his mouth, yeah. which is sometimes the kryptonite that the candidates like this just, you know, don't want to do. Yeah, well, thank you. Great piece. Excellent. We'll Thanks, definitely Joy. have you back. Mark Leibovich, thank you very much. That is tonight's readout. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win.